Welcome to Monmouth Community Christian Church. It's, it's wonderful to gather with you today. Uh, you made it out today, even though it's one of the coldest days in New Jersey that I've had so far this year, but not quite as cold as it was for me over Thanksgiving in Minnesota. But it was chilly. I had to scrape my windows this morning. So thanks for coming out so that we could worship God together as his people. In my sermons, we've been learning that God is calling us together as his people to become a holy temple in which each of our lives is a a living stone that's fitted together to form the most holy place in which God dwells by his spirit with Jesus Christ as our living cornerstone. Since we together become the most holy place where God manifests his presence and power on earth in a similar way to how he manifested his presence on earth in the tabernacle and the temple long ago, because of this, we've been asking what it means for us as his people to have the holy God dwelling among us in our community as as we gather here, as we worship him together. We learn that our God is a consuming fire, that God's holiness can be thought of as similar to the sun, the overwhelming power of the sun, which is life-giving. All of the biology on our planet depends on the sun, and yet the sun will disintegrate anything that's unprepared to draw near to its surface. God calls us as individuals and as a community to be holy. Not because his holiness is fragile or threatened by our unholiness. But God calls us to to be holy so that we can approach him. So that we can draw near to him even though his holiness is overwhelmingly powerful. Because his holiness will will undo and remove everything that's unholy that approaches him. If we don't allow God to work his holiness within us and among us as a community by the power of the Holy Spirit, then instead of our lives together being this strong and solid temple made of these living stones of our lives, our lives are going to be filled with the chaff of sin, this flammable chaff of sin, and then our community together will be riddled and filled with this flammable chaff of sin, and we will not be able to survive the holy presence of God. We learn that God may withdraw his presence from a community that's filled with sin temporarily out of his mercy to give that community time to repent, time to turn to him. But someday, God will confront each of our lives and each of our communities with the consuming fire of his holiness. Either we've already allowed him to remove that that chaff of sin from our lives and and from our communities, allowing him to transform us and give us his own holiness through the work of the Holy Spirit among us. 
Or someday the consuming fire of God's presence will completely overwhelm and remove all that is unholy in our lives and in our community. We then learn that when God reveals his holiness to us, God is simply being true to himself. And when God calls us to be holy, God is calling us to be true to who he created us to be. We learn that we are God's masterpiece, created in his image. But when we sin by turning away from God and rejecting his holiness, that masterpiece was lost. We've damaged and destroyed who we were created to be as those created in God's image to be God's holy people. And the only path back now for us to become who God created us to be is by entering a friendship with God through Jesus Christ by which he recreates us, by which he gives us his Holy Spirit to transform us, to make us holy, to make us like Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit then enables us to live in the presence of our holy God through this process of transformation that the Bible calls sanctification. It just means to make holy. God makes us holy. All of this together then, all all these, these threads weave together then to teach us that we will never discover the truth of who we really are by looking within ourselves. It's impossible. The only way you will discover the truth of who you really are, the only way I will discover the truth of who I really am is by looking to God revealed to us in Jesus Christ because there we see the image of God. In Jesus, we see who God is transforming us to be like. Today we're building on this trajectory that Scripture teaches us about the holiness of God and the holiness that God calls us to experience as His people in our own lives and in our community as this this gathering, this assembly called the church. And we're going to do this by turning our attention to an aspect of holiness that our society rejects as outdated and irrelevant. Today we're looking at God's call to us to be holy in the area of our sexuality. Now in many ways our society's experience of sexuality today is much like those old intersections in the 1920s before traffic lights and and stop signs were invented. You can look at this old film Uh, footage, these old film reels, and they'll just show these old cars going in every direction. Just, it's just total chaos. Uh, It's like a driver in in one corner decides, I just want to be at the opposite corner, and they just start plowing just through and weaving past all the other traffic. There were no traffic laws at one time. And in many ways, it's as though our, our society's view of sexuality is a lot like this. Our society tells us there's no boundaries to your sexuality. There are are no traffic 
lights. There are no stop signs. And our society warns us not to even suggest to anyone that there should be stop signs or traffic lights limiting or directing anybody's sexuality. In this way, our society actually closely resembles the Greco-Roman society of the first century. The Apostle Paul would have felt totally at home here, and he would have felt totally at home preaching the gospel in our setting here today. Because the cultural setting of the Greco-Roman region in the first century is still famous today for its sexual permissiveness, its lack of sexual boundaries. And not only that, but the city of Corinth, the city to which Paul wrote the words that we're going to read in just a moment, this city, in a culture famous for sexual permissiveness, this city was one of the most sexually permissive cities in the Greco-Roman region. And so rather than being outdated or irrelevant, Scripture's teachings about sexuality reveal how God spoke into and how God addressed believers in Jesus Christ who were living in a sexually permissive culture much like our society today. So let's read Paul's words to the believers living in the city of Corinth, the city that took sexual freedom to the extreme. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says this, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Here Paul instructs the believers in Corinth and us today to flee from sexual immorality. Now, this word in the Greek, flee, is a very strong word. It describes escaping, running away, doing everything that you possibly can do to avoid something because of its deadly danger, because of the tremendous harm it's going to cause to you and your life. When you flee, you use every ounce of energy you have to struggle and claw your way, to get away, to run away as far as possible from the danger. And the thing that Paul says we are to flee here is sexual immorality. The Greek word that Paul is using here, which we translate as sexual immorality, it's the Greek word porneia. It's the Greek word that's at the root of our word pornography. This word porneia, translated as sexual immorality, refers to people having sex outside of the Christian covenant of marriage. God's intention for sexual sexual activity is to be reserved for the Christian 
covenant of marriage. And in Scripture, we see that this is so important to God that in Scripture, God repeatedly uses a metaphor, this this metaphor of sexual unfaithfulness to describe what we're doing when we run after false gods, when we worship and serve something other than the one true living God. God tells us that worshiping false gods is an act of unfaithfulness that resembles the unfaithfulness of a spouse who has sex with someone to whom they're not married. Now there's another important piece of the puzzle we need to put in place and be aware of today. And that is this, that that when the non-Jewish Gentiles began placing their faith in Jesus Christ and following him, the early church leaders in Jerusalem made a decision that would open up the church to be able to become multicultural. This happened when the church leaders in Jerusalem, all of whom were culturally Jewish at that time, when, when they decided that they we're going to release and and free the Greco-Roman new believers from many of the laws of the Old Testament. In other words, they were going to allow these new Greco-Roman believers to remain culturally Greco-Roman. They decided to, to let them stay in their culture rather than force them to become culturally Jewish, okay? And so by this decision, the church officially becomes multicultural rather than remaining culturally Jewish. And yet, the one area of Greco-Roman culture that was inconsistent with faith in Jesus Christ, the one area of the lives of these new Greco-Roman believers that needed to change was the area of their sexual behavior. We read of the decision that the church leaders make in Acts 15. They say this. They're writing a letter now to all these non-Jewish, Greco-Roman culture churches. They write, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality, pornea. You will do well to avoid these things. This means that even though different cultures do indeed have different customs and different practices in regard to sexuality, and even though the new Greco-Roman believers were coming from a Greco-Roman culture that was extremely permissive sexually, the church understood that God still calls every believer in Jesus Christ to sexual holiness. Therefore, cultural trends and our culture's acceptance of various sexual practices do not remove and they do not in any way diminish God's call to his people to live lives of sexual holiness. Now I think it's likely at this point that some of you are beginning to tune out. 
you're realizing that Scripture teaches the exact opposite of what society around us is teaching us in your own schools, at your workplaces, in our movies and shows, on the internet, in in our music, everywhere. And it's likely that some of you are feeling a little upset, maybe even angry, that Scripture suggests that there should be boundaries to our sexuality. In moments like this, when we feel a tension between the gravitational pull of of our society on one hand and Scripture's clear teaching on the other, I think it's helpful to recall a metaphor that C.S. Lewis gave us to describe God's call in our lives. I I shared this on Easter Sunday this year. C.S. Lewis writes this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like, ignorant, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When we find ourselves struggling against the words of Scripture, What if it's because we're like a child that that doesn't know anything more fun in all the world than making mud pies in a slum? What if the sexual behavior that our society is inviting us to participate in, what if it's just these mud pies? When we hear the words of Scripture that, that... We're to flee sexual immorality. We're to flee pornea. What if if we become upset because we think that the best thing that this life can offer is making mud pies in a slum? But what if God's call to us to give up our mud pies is because he's offering us something that's so much better than we can imagine? as a holiday at a tropical vacation resort, is better than making mud pies in a slum, so too. The life of holiness that God is calling us to is more enriching, more rewarding, more fulfilling than our society's version of sexual permissiveness. And when we choose to live according to our surrounding culture's version of sexual permissiveness, what if our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak? What if we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, infinite joy is offered to us? What if we are far too easily pleased? For us today to hear in a biblical way 
God's call to his people to experience sexual holiness means that we need to hear this call as rooted in the gospel, rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ. God's call to his people to to live lives of sexual holiness is not a call for us to make ourselves good enough or us to make ourselves holy enough on our own to please God. We learned about how hopeless all of our attempts are to restore the image of God within us on our own. How hopeless our attempts are to achieve God's holiness through our own strength and effort. Any attempt like this on our own to to make ourselves holy on our own is like that old lady in Spain who tried to restore the damaged picture of Jesus in her church. And we saw that she just made matters worse. And we make matters worse when we try to restore the image of the holy God within us on our own through our own strength and effort. We just distort the masterpiece even more. We add those ugly lines of pride and self-sufficiency and superiority. And our actual lack of holiness just becomes more obvious to everyone else at least, and finally, even to ourselves. But God is not calling us to keep his instructions concerning sexual holiness through our own strength and effort alone, but by the power and the enablement of the Holy Spirit at work in and through you and me. In other words, these instructions that we're looking at today, they're not entrance requirements that we have to fulfill before we can enter a friendship with God. At an amusement park, if you want to go on the latest roller coaster, there's often this sign right at the entrance that says you have to be at least this tall. And I think all of us have been frustrated at times because we were too short for the ride we want to go on. But God is not giving us an entrance requirement like this. He's not giving us an entrance entrance requirement we have to fulfill on our own before we can enter a relationship with him. The reason is that as we've been learning, we're all hopelessly broken. We're all hopelessly distorted and infected by sin. Romans 3 explains this. It says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see, God knows that you and I cannot achieve his holiness on our own through our own strength or effort. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. If we don't understand this, then we don't understand anything about following Jesus. Because we couldn't make ourselves holy because we could not enable ourselves to stand in the presence of the holy God, God came to us. 
God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is Christmas. This is joy. And Jesus then took our sin and brokenness upon himself, and through his death on the cross, he removes our sin, our rebellion against God. He heals the break in our relationship with God. He removes everything that blocks us from entering the presence of the holy God. And as we enter this friendship with God, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins working in us, giving us the holiness of God, making us capable of standing and living and having friendship with our holy Lord. We don't earn in any way this access into the holy presence of God. We're given the holiness of Jesus Christ as a free gift. That's what grace means. When we place our faith in him so that we may live as God's people in his holy presence. Paul's readers in the church of Corinth understood this deeply. They knew that they absolutely had not earned their friendship with God. They were first welcomed into God's presence by grace through a free gift they did not earn or deserve. And then they experienced the reality that their relationship with God leads to deep transformation in their own lives and in their community. In the passage we read at 1 Corinthians 6, Paul speaks earlier in the chapter about this transformation. He says this, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The heart of the gospel the, the center of the good news of Jesus Christ is that no matter where we started, no matter what we've done, if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, if we surrender our broken lives to him, if we choose to follow him, he takes these broken lives of ours into his loving nail-scarred hands and he starts to, to clean us. He washes us. He cleanses us. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy. He justifies us. He, de he declares that we are righteous in the sight of God. He gives us a new life in the presence of our holy God. And you know this list on the screen, it encompasses us all. Because perhaps you aren't a thief or a drunkard, but who of us have never acted in greed? Who of us here have never slandered somebody else? 
This passage is basically saying that no one on their own will inherit the kingdom of God because all of us are wrongdoers. All of us have rejected the holiness of God. All of us have rejected our, have broken our relationship with Him. All of us need to be washed, need to be sanctified, need to be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, an implication of this is that I think it's futile for the church to stand up and demand that society around us live according to the sexual holiness to which God calls believers in Scripture. The root problem of our society is not that the people around us are sexually permissive. The root problem of our society is that the people around us do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They do not have the Holy Spirit working within them, transforming them. How they live, it's just a symptom of the spiritual root. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only through the Holy Spirit transforming our lives that any of us will ever experience sexual holiness. God calls broken, sinful people like you and like me into relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. He doesn't ask us to change our lives first and then come to him. He calls us to simply come to him right now, today, no matter what you're involved in. No matter what you're doing, he calls us to come to him right now with all the confusion and complexity and brokenness and sinfulness of our lives and to surrender our lives entirely into his loving hands so that he can take us and cleanse us and and begin to heal us and work within us and transform us to make us more like him so that we reflect the image of Jesus Christ in who we are. Finally, Paul explains why he's giving these instructions, why God cares so much about our, sex, our sexuality, why God commands us to flee sexual immorality, porneia. And the reason is that our sexuality has both a physical dimension and a spiritual dimension. He writes, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. In Greek culture at this time, the body and physical matter were seen as vastly inferior to the mind and the spirit. And there were some who took this Greek viewpoint to the extreme by claiming that because of this, a person can then do whatever they want with their body because the body doesn't matter. They believed the Greek view is that when you die, your body perishes but your spirit, your mind and spirit live on forever, immortally. That's Greek philosophy. That's not Scripture. Scripture talks about resurrection. We are raised, our body, soul, and spirit. All that we are will be raised someday. 
And so this, this Greek thinking influenced Greco-Roman people and the Greco-Roman culture to think that they could do whatever they want. There's no sexual boundaries because I can do whatever I want with my body. It's just going to perish. But here in this passage, Paul confronts this false cultural belief by explaining that our bodies and what we do with our bodies do matter. He says this, he says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. When we act sexually in ways that go against how God created and intended for us to live, we sin against our own bodies. And Paul then explains next, why this matters. We as God's people not only become a united temple as we gather together, but Paul says that we experience this same reality on an individual level. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Our physical bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Put another way, in drawing upon what we've been learning about God's holiness and what it meant for God to dwell in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the most holy place, this means that our physical bodies themselves become the most holy place in which God dwells, in which God manifests his presence here on earth. This is why Paul writes earlier in this chapter, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, porneia, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Our bodies do matter. What we do with our bodies does matter matter because there's a spiritual dimension to our sexuality in addition to its physical dimension and our physical bodily life here on earth is linked to and affects our spiritual life. Paul provides a further theological explanation earlier in this chapter. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, the city of Corinth had its own acropolis on a hill overshadowing the city. And on the top of this acropolis was a temple to Aphrodite. This was the Greco-Roman goddess of love, lust, beauty, and pleasure. And it is said that there were about a thousand priestesses who served in this temple as sacred prostitutes. As part of one's worship of Aphrodite, uh, a person would have sex with these prostitute priestesses. And scholars tell us that in the evenings, they descended, the priestesses descended from the Acropolis and plied their trade upon the streets 
of Corinth, making Corinth famous throughout the Roman Empire for its prostitutes. Here Paul is not only saying that God calls the Corinthians to experience sexual holiness, he's also explaining why. He's giving us the reason behind the command. When we whose bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit unite our bodies with others outside of the Christian covenant of marriage, we're trying to unite two things that are spiritually incompatible. We're trying to unite our bodies that belong to Jesus Christ and that are now little temples in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit with the sexual permissiveness that contradicts and rejects the holiness of God. We're trying to unite in ourselves the holy God who lives within us with the unholiness of the world around us. And Paul teaches us this cannot be. So how do we apply this teaching practically to our lives today? An important way that we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work within us as he leads us toward sexual holiness is by guarding what we allow to enter into our hearts and our minds through our eyes our ears, and our thoughts. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Just as our physical health would be hurt if we fed ourselves garbage and poison, so too our spiritual health will suffer if we're not careful about what we feed our minds and our hearts. And so we need to guard ourselves from spiritual garbage. Guard, we need to guard ourselves from spiritual poison. That includes not just sexually explicit movies and shows and websites and music, but it also includes material that's excessively violent or that, that, that involves the occult. Growing in sexual holiness through the work of the Holy Spirit involves guarding what we allow into our minds and our hearts. Now for those today struggling with pornography or other sexual sins, I encourage you, to share your struggle with a trusted Christian friend who can pray for you, who can pray with you, and who can also, in the love of Christ, hold you accountable. Neuroscientific research tells us that with time and accountability, it will become easier for you to resist porn and other sexual sins as time goes by. Researchers tell us it takes about 90 days for the human brain to reset from the addictive compulsive effects of porn consumption. Practices that can help you to resist and to persevere include not only having an accountability partner, a Christian brother or sister who will hold you accountable in love, 
but then also understanding the common triggers that trip people up in the area of sexuality, that, that often make people vulnerable. And the most common triggers are when you're feeling hungry, angry, lonely, tired. These four things spell out the acronym HALT. You can remember that. Hungry, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're especially vulnerable to sexual sin. You can also set up preventative boundaries such as time limits on your computer or phone use. You can add accountability software to your devices. And you can stay away from the people and places that make it easier for you to fall into sexual sin. Finally, I mentioned earlier that we must read our passage for today in light of the gospel. And this means that we must read our passage for today in light of God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. If you've made mistakes in the area of sexuality, the good news for you today is that Jesus Christ offers total forgiveness. He offers deep cleansing that's so complete that if you receive his forgiveness, if you take him up on his offer of forgiveness, then in God's sight, it's as though you've never sinned. In 1 John 1.9 we read, if, you conf- if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say some unrighteousness. It says all unrighteousness. He'll forgive and purify us completely. And in Romans 8.1 we read, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this morning, let's enter into God's grace. Let's live in this reality of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This grace and mercy and forgiveness, this is the message that Paul proclaimed to these young believers in Corinth who were struggling with their sexuality, who had no idea there should be boundaries to how they lived, who who they, they they did everything conceivable as everyone around them in their city had done. This is the grace, mercy, forgiveness that Paul proclaimed to them. And this is the same grace and mercy and forgiveness that God proclaims to us today through his living word. Like these young believers in Corinth who struggled sexually, you too today can be washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. God claims us as his own. He claims all of who we are and this means that God claims our sexuality. What we do with our bodies matters deeply to God because our physical bodies themselves become by grace temples of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we as individuals and as a community will hear and obey God's call to us 
to live lives of sexual holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in and through us. We are not, at, we are not our own. We were bought at a price. Therefore, let's honor God with our bodies. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word just cuts right through the, the confusion and, and, and fog. And Lord, when you reveal yourself to us, you, you let us hear your voice so that we can follow you along this path that, that we would have never imagined walking apart from you. And God, this morning I pray for those here that are struggling sexually, whether it's with pornography or another sexual sin, I pray, God, that, that they would hear your call today, a call to enter your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your call to enter into sanctification, transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, we pray.